like to do is ask you to go to Philippians. I want to do a study there in chapter 3. Follow up a little bit of what we had this past Sunday in the book of Philippians chapter 3. If you need sermon notes, raise your hand. The ushers will get that to you as we embark into a study and back in Philippians one more time. And um, what I wanted to do is start in chapter 3 and pick up where we left off in the book of Philippians. He says in chapter 3, we went down to about verse 16 on Sunday. Look at verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of, Christ, of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things, but he goes on, our conversation is in the heaven which from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto him. As I was thinking about it, the fact is that there's uh, this idea that he is calling the people to follow and to, to make him the pattern. Years ago, I remember there was a movie that was entitled this idea. That was one of those Walt Disney feel-good movies, the idea of somebody providing an example for young men who were in troubled lives and made a real, real impact in their lives so that some of them turned things around. Well, Paul is writing to the Philippians and he's saying, I want you to follow me. And it's not because they are such... Um, such hooligans that they're creating lots of problems. They're walking and serving the Lord, but he wants them to follow him and to say, okay, here, take this pattern because the pattern that I have been living by is a good pattern that you can live by. Remember where he said elsewhere, follow me even as I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, he repeats that thought here. And when he's writing, he's telling them, you know, take me as an example and walk where I have walked. Do what I have done. And under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he is able to say to the crowd, I'm providing you a worthy human example that you should follow. Now, some of you might look at it and say, wait a minute, you're going to talk about Paul's example and how we should act like him and be like him, but I can't do that. You see, Paul is an apostle. I'm not an apostle. Paul had opportunity to talk directly to God, get inspiration from God, and have a different type of a working, walking relationship with God than I have. Let me remind you of two things. If you get discouraged sometimes, you look at these Bible characters and think that they are bigger than life and that you could never be like some of these individuals, I want to remind you about something. The two different facts. One, Paul is not living a life that is real easy. In fact, as he is writing this book of Philippians, where is he sitting at at the time he's writing? He's in jail, okay? And he is talking about how he's trying to be a witness to everyone in the household of Caesar. He talks about being in bonds in verse 12. He talks about the idea that I'm not sure what's going to happen in the future. I think I'll be released to be able to come to you. He talks about in the middle of chapter 1, and we looked at it a couple weeks ago. But he's uncertain. He's just not sure of his future. His life has not been easy. Holding your finger there, go to 2 Corinthians. Back a few, a few pages in 2 Corinthians, when he is ministering during this time period, he describes some of his personal life experiences in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to just get a taste, get a flavor of what Paul was going through. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he is giving a testimony. He is going to say several times, I, I don't want to be boasting, I don't want to be bragging, and I'm saying these things and I sound foolish, but I need to be able to tell you what I'm going through So because of my critics. And in the middle of that conversation, watch what he says in chapter 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? 
am, so am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. In other words, I got to say these things and I don't want to. I am more as a minister of Christ. And then he describes as he's ministered what he's gone through in 2 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 23. He says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in threats of death often. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one. I bet you his back was a mess. He goes on, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep sea, in journeyings often in perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in peril in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are daily, that are, that are without, which cometh upon me daily, I I also have the burden of the care of all the churches. Point is, Paul has had a really rough go of it. He's serving the Lord, and it's been difficult to serve the Lord. So I think he comes from a position where he can say, I have gone through an awful lot, and I've remained faithful, and here's an example that you can follow. Something else that strikes me, a second fact, about his being able to say to you and me, follow me, and he's going through difficult times and he's still faithful. Back in chapter 3 of Philippians, notice when he says, follow me, he adds something to it. Brethren, be follow I'm, in, I'm in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Be followers together of me and mark what or who else? Them, which what? Walk so as you have us for an example. There are more people than just Paul in, question, in, in uh, discussion here. Paul is saying several of us are providing you an example. Some of them aren't apostles. Some of them are people like you, serving in a church dedicated to the Lord, and they're giving a good example. And they're providing that. So here we have this thought that sometimes we think these, these Christian, these Bible characters that we put in, in uh, sermons that, well, I couldn't be like them because they are super Christians. They are... Um, <clears throat> living totally different from me because they have different food, they have different, different spiritual uh, powers and abilities. That's not true. They are like us. They go through difficult times. They're serving the Lord. They don't have a life of ease. And some of them don't have special apostolic or whatever uh, supernatural abilities or gifts. And, then, and yet they can provide an example for us. So when we talk about this, you know, what we, what we want to be discussing is what is it in his life? What is it in the life of his friends that made them such a good example? And there's several things I want to share with you from this one passage. Just jumping around, looking at several different comments that he makes. But before that, let me just remind you and encourage you this fact. We should take the example they provide and follow it so we can make an impact upon others. So we can say to coworkers, we can say to the class that you're teaching in Sunday school, the people you're doing the Bible study with, your relatives, your own kids, you can say, be followers of me as I am of Christ. Here's what you should do. You should be able to say to your kids, you should follow my example of what to do when the car breaks down how to respond to the trials. You should be able to follow my example of how to treat your spouse because we are providing you such a good example. You should be able to provide an example how to deal with somebody who offends you by the way that we deal properly with somebody who offends us. And so you should be able to do that. You and I should strive to do that in our own lives, our own, our own homes, our own church family, our church body, that are at school. 
at college for some of you, to others at, in the dorm to be able to say, I want to provide an example for others on how to respond in such a close-knit community where there's a lot of tensions because of the nature of just the facility and the surroundings and how we live in close quarters. And so we can take their example, apply it to our life, and provide examples for others because people need it. We need human examples to help us to know how to pray, how to relate with one another, and to see how it really li lives out in an everyday life. Now, what is it exactly that struck me about Paul and his friends that he, under the inspiration of the Bible, is saying, I'm providing you a good example to follow? Number one is this. Number one is he has a walk that is, he, he walked, I'm going to say it, he walked a worthy walk. He says in this chapter, and we're jumping down to verse 17 again, Brethren, be followers together of me. Mark them which walk as you have an example. And then he adds some secondary thoughts. The main thought continues in verse 20 then. He says, follow me as you have this example for our, what's your Bible read? Verse 20. Our conversation. Anybody have something else? Our citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior Jesus Christ. And so he is telling them, follow me and I'm giving you an example because what I know and what I'm doing is I am living like an alien here upon this earth. I am living like an individual who is living as if I am, and I am, a citizen of heaven. I am doing things, acting, I am, um, I am interacting with folk, I'm responding to situations like a heavenly citizen would respond. Now these people would really take um, notice of the word he uses where he says, for our conversation. I mentioned this uh, about three, four weeks ago when he started the series, that when he talked about citizenship, he's talking to the people of Philippi. These people were living in the country of Greece. They grew up as native Grecians. Okay, that's not the hairdo or the formula for that. It's their native Grecian people or Greeks. There they are, but they have, they have been given something very special for peoples of that region. They are Roman citizens. They have been given a special uh, privilege of being able to have this city of Philippi elevated so all of its people are citizens of the far distant empire. Its location is in Rome, its headquarters, and it's got its influences there in their Greek territory. But they are a privileged high-class people. And they would understand the idea of being a Roman citizen in a Greek culture and how as Roman citizens, they had to live a certain way to uphold Rome. And they would know that. And so he's writing and saying, I am a citizen, I'm here, but I'm a citizen of a different land. I'm a citizen of heaven. And I am living in such a way that I can give you an example because I am walking different than the people around me, the citizens around me. I am living where my loyalties and my heart is and where I am been birthed into the family of God. Now, let me see if I can put it this way. You and I can identify different peoples. Sometimes people visit our church, and you might say, you are from the South because... Okay. Their accent? Their speech pattern? Okay, does that give them away? Those Southerners? Right? Okay. What else distinguishes people at times? How do you know people are native to central Pennsylvania, this area? Do they use, not just, not just their accent, but sometimes their clothing will give them away. Okay. What else? Words? Do people in this area talk goofy sometimes? 
<laughs> they talk Dutchy? Okay. Okay. Hey, listen. If I start saying I want to, I want some pop to drink, where are you going to target me? From what area of the country? Okay, Midwest typically. Okay. Um, if we talk about red up the room, and some of you have no clue, and you know, where's that from? That is definitely Lebanon baloney talk. Okay, that's right in here. Okay, you, you, have, you have identifying people by the way they talk. Can you identify people, associate them with a country by the way they dress? With a culture. Sometimes we can, can't we? Okay, sometimes there will be that manner, there will be that type. What, what else gives away people? Skin color can do it. Okay, skin tones, sure. What about diet? Does diet give away certain cultures? Okay. And certain diets that people, you, they, they, it, it affects them. If they're a real garlic diet, it's not just their diet, but it's their body. <laughs> their body gives them away. Okay. So we have, we have different ways of looking and observing. And what, do you, what you have in this text is he's, he's basically saying, I, I, I talk like somebody who's a heavenly citizen. Which means if his talk is what he can point to, you and I would say his talk definitely doesn't have what? What things in his talk would be different if he's acting like a heavenly citizen? No swearing? Okay. Anything different? Anything else? What's that? The things he talks about. The jokes he tells? Would there be a difference? Okay. How he talks to somebody in mannerisms? Even if they're upset? Okay, all those things. And he's saying, you know, I, you can identify I am a citizen of heaven by the way I walk. By the way I, that is, talk. I think, would, would attire? How about work habits? Should a heavenly citizen live and work differently than others? Yeah, yeah. How about the way they discipline their kids? Yes? How they talk to their, their superiors? All of that's a big difference. And he's saying, that's the way I'm doing it. I'm walking, I'm acting, I'm talking, I'm working, I'm studying like I am a heavenly citizen because I'm representing heaven. There is something else that he's able to point to and say, okay, here's a good example. And this is in that context that we talked about on Sunday. He weighed himself properly. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about the physical weighing because I don't like physical weighing and I don't do it properly. When I go to the doctors, it's like they say, stand on the scale, and it's like, yeah, right, I'll put one foot on the scale. And I don't want to get the full story. We're not talking that weighing, you know, cheating that way. We're talking, though, how he viewed himself. And this chapter is set up where Paul is writing and he's reviewing or reviewing himself in a really, really honest fashion. Do you remember what we talked about on Sunday in verses 4 through 9 where he writes and he says, okay, this is, I'm viewing myself. He says, I'm a really good moral person by human standards. Correct? Where he said, I am a Hebrew of the... Hebrews. I was one who was a Pharisee. Concerning the law, he says, I, I was blameless. I'm a, he goes on in verse 6, he says, you know, I even was so zealous, I was persecuting the church. I lived more moral, um, is that a right for, way to say it? I was more moral than most everybody. And he says, I was, re talking about a religious person, I was religious beyond belief. Better than all these others who are coming along and saying, you have to do good works. Paul is saying, I had so many good works, it was a huge pile compared to most people. 
So he's viewing himself properly when he says, okay, I knew where I was. I had all these good works, but remember what he said about the good works? I count them as, as a loss. Then he used that more blunt term. I count them as, as dung. Okay, so he viewed himself in the right way where although he was moral, he realized this moral uh, activity was not what's going to get him into heaven. And he's very clear about that because he's saying, although I am a, a good person, I am not good enough to get into heaven. And he's making it very clear, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that he needed a savior. Then he goes on after he's talked about his salvation experience in verses 10 and following when we talk about viewing himself, he makes it very clear that even though he's active in Christian service, he was saying, okay, I'm weighing myself properly. I have been involved with preaching. And by the time he's writing this, he's been involved with preaching for a few decades. Although I have preached, although I have started churches, although I have witnessed, although I have done a lot of sacrificing, and I've almost been martyred a few times. We read that already, you know, almost dying on several occasions. He says, although I've done all that, I don't think I have done enough. Do you remember how he says it in verse 10? And we, again, I don't want to repeat everything we talked about on Sunday for your sake of time, but he says, here's my goal. I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be made conformable to his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection. Not as though I have already, what? Attained, either were already perfect. In other words, I haven't arrived, folk. And he's being very honest. He's weighing himself properly. He isn't saying, look at all the things I've done in the past and now it's good enough and I can retire spiritually. And I can give up. And I can stop. And I've served God so much in the past that I'm, I have no responsibility to serve God anymore in the present. That's not Paul. He weighed himself properly by saying, I'm not good enough to get into heaven. I've done service for the Lord, but that was in the past. I have to do what with the things that are behind I forget the things that are behind and I press forward for the prize of the high calling of Jesus Christ. And then he writes as he's concluding that section of that paragraph, he writes, let us therefore as many be perfect or want to be perfect, be like-minded. That we have that same attitude. And so Paul is saying, okay, I'm weighing myself. I'm looking at myself. You and I need to stop. Do we weigh ourselves biblically the way Paul weighed himself? Do we evaluate ourselves? In other words, if we were to put it in different questions, do you ever consider yourself so morally good that you deserve heaven? That you deserve God's favor and blessings upon your life because you have done him so many favors? None of us have. But is there a tendency, if we're not careful, can we become pompous? Can we become proud? Can we start saying, I am better, I'm a better Christian than so-and-so because, and we can list out our good deeds and make comparisons. We've got to be careful with that. The reality is, there go I, but what? But by the grace of God. There go I, and I can do anything, I can do everything, and I've got to be careful you know, of being pompous and arrogant because if we start being pompous and arrogant, we've got to be careful lest we, lest we fall. And so you and I have got to be cautious of that pride, but we've also got to be cautious of a biblical, I mean, of an unbiblical contentment that we've done enough for the Lord, that we've prayed enough for the Lord, that we've 
studied enough Bible. Yeah, you know, I, I know all the Bible that I could ever know. Really? Really? Yeah, you know, I, I, I've memorized enough scripture. I've, I've been, that's like saying, Deb, I've loved you enough. I don't need to love you anymore. Right? Okay. You kids, kids, I raised you. And now that you're out of my home, I don't need to be a good example to you anymore. Do I still have a responsibility to be an example to my family? Don't we all? Okay. Well, I got them through the terrible twos. And now that we made it through the terrible twos, I don't have to be a patient parent anymore. No, it doesn't work that way. Oh, we've hit our 25th anniversary. Now that we have 25 years, we don't have to be patient with each other anymore. Right? Okay? The, we can't do that. You know, I've led three people to the Lord in my lifetime, and so three is enough. I don't need to win anymore. Really? We've got to be careful that we weigh ourselves properly. Let me take this a step further. Number three, that he not only weighed himself, but he weighed works and faith properly. That's a lot of this discussion. Where Paul is dealing with faith in, in, in versus works. Because remember, the false teachers who are coming in, that he talks about in verses 1 and 2, they are coming in and they are the, wor the evil workers. They are the peoples of the concision. They are the, the dogs, he says. They are individuals who are saying to, to the folk in that church that you have to do works to complete your salvation. You have to follow whatever rules we give you. You've got to dress the way we tell you. You've got to keep the feast days the way we tell you. Or you won't complete your salvation or grow in grace. And so he's going to combat that. And as he combats that in chapter 3, he has a really, really, really good balance between faith and works. Which is a biblical thought. Okay, do works ever get us into heaven? No, they don't. But if we're on our way to heaven, should we have works? Yes, absolutely. We're saved by faith, and yet we have to be producing for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul talks about it very clearly. He's saying, as we've already looked on Sunday, he says that my salvation, my walk with the Lord, is of God. It is purely of God. Remember how we pointed that out Sunday morning in verse 9? where he ends up by saying righteousness which is of God. He makes it very clear. We don't get righteousness through church. We don't get it through our good looks. We don't get it through our good works. We don't get it through our good relationships that we have with our family, at work, or wherever. It's of God. It comes to us in verse 9 through Jesus Christ. And it comes through Jesus Christ by our exercising faith. We see that all in verse 9 as you look at the, the different, uh, different phrases that are there. And so Paul makes it clear that here it's my spiritual walk with the Lord is an outworking of God's grace to me. God opened that up. God provided that salvation. And yet at the same time, is there another side of the coin that says I have responsibility? Well, what did he say in verses 10, 11, and 12? He says in those passages, he says, it's a work of God that God will make me conformable unto the death of Jesus Christ. The verb that he uses in verse 10 is what you and I would call a passive verb. It is somebody else making him conformable unto Christ. In verse 12, he says, not that I had already attained, either were perfected. I follow after, if that I may apprehend for that which I have already been apprehended. God has already grabbed him. God has already pulled him into the family of God. He's making it very clear. I didn't push my way into the family of God. I was apprehended and brought in through the work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a work of God. Amen, amen, amen. 
We couldn't get saved without God wooing us. We can't get saved without God convicting us. We can't get saved without the Spirit of God producing the conversion in our hearts by changing us. We know that. He uses that same passive idea down in verse 21 where he talks about how God is going to change us. How God will change our vile bodies. So here he has all these statements that are making that he's making about God doing the work of salvation and sanctification in our lives. And we understand that without Christ we can do nothing. We can't do anything. We understand that the fruits of the Spirit are just that. They are fruits of the Spirit. We understand that. Right? Yes? Okay, it's a working of God. However, Paul has a balance here. Because in verses 12, 13, 14, Paul uses other verbs that say, okay, God is doing the work, but at the same time, I follow after. At the same time, I need to apprehend. At the same time, this one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind. I am reaching forth. I am pressing toward. He has this proper view of faith and works. Uh, if we can put it this way. He is a balanced believer. He is balanced in the sense that he knows that a lot of salvation, a lot of sanctification, it is God's work. It is God working. But there is also that human element in this, is there not? The human element that I need to do something as well. I need to respond. I need to apply it to my life. Um, I saw an advertisement last night. The first time I saw this advertisement, I thought it was really cool. I thought, wow, look at this new device that they have out on the market that has these six wheels. You pull it along, it comes up to a step, and the one wheel walks up, and then another one walks up. And, you know, I thought, that's really cool. And it looks even cooler because I'm getting older. That is something that I, that I you know, could ask for Christmas. This is something really fabulous. And I thought, this is strange because, you know, it was one of those shopping things that, you know, you buy now, and in the next 30 seconds, you know, you could get something special like a strap, you know, with your name on it. And then there's free shipping and, you know, and the price is $19.99 and if you call now, you will get two for the price of one. So it caught my attention. I thought, this is really cool. And I went on the internet today just out of curiosity to see what these things, you know, were normally like. They are all over the place. There's pictures of them using them in warehouses and using them to, for appliances and all this stuff. And most of it is in the Orient. That they, you know, China and Japan, there's ads all over the place. And, and so it's, a, it's new, something that I've never seen before, but obviously it's been around for a while. Now, you look at that, and it does a lot of the work of picking the thing up over the steps. But do you still have to do something with that cart? Yeah, you still have to... Pull it. Okay, it's easier, but you still have to put effort into it. What part of our Christian life isn't this true? I mean, every part of our Christian life, there's a balance here that it's part, and, and, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, it's of God, but also, I got to do something. Okay, I understand. We need to let go and let God but if, if we let go of everything and let God and never witness, who's going to get saved? Right? Do you follow me? Okay, salvation. God provides, but don't you have to do something. You must, you've got to respond to it. You've got to believe. There's a human and a, and a divine element. Prayer. God hears, God answers, but you have got to 
You've got to pray. There's a human element to it. This idea that the power is in the word of God, where it says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not. Okay, so the power of the word of God to defeat sin in our life, phenomenal. But what good will it be if I don't take the word of God into my heart? Right? Here, give you another one. We get victory over Satan. God defeated Satan at the cross, did he not? It says that he rendered him inoperative. But James says, we must do what with the devil and he will flee from us. We still have to resist. We have got to say no. We have the idea of loving others. Oh yeah, the Spirit of God. He's going to enable me to love the unlovely. That's true. That's absolutely true. I couldn't do that without the Spirit of God. But I still have to act. I still have to show that love. I still have to be willing to forgive. And there's a human divine element. The spiritual fruit in my life, yes, it's all a result of the Holy Spirit. And yet in 1 Peter it says, add to your faith gentleness and goodness and all those, some of those same virtues. That there's a requirement on our part. Raising godly kids, it is definitely by the grace of God. Period. It's by the grace of God. But at the, there, is there a human element that says we've got to train? We've got to discipline? Or do those kids of Christian parents, they, those kids, yeah, that's right. When kids are born into the Christian family, those kids never get selfish. Those kids never argue because they're raised in a Christian home. Those kids never have a struggle with obeying authority. You kidding? There's moments we want to put them back where they came from. Okay, they're driving us nuts, right? And so there's the idea is we have a human element as parents. We have, we, we know that no matter what we do, if God's not in it, it's not going to work. It's the working, it's, it's God that produces the result. But I have responsibility. The same thing goes about winning the loss. You can name it. And I'm not trying to diminish the work of God, nor am I trying to elevate us in any way, shape, or form. There's a balance. There's a balance in Scripture. There's the divine element, and there's the human response to that, and the human requirement. And we understand that, we know that, and Paul does too in this text. It's all of God, it's by God's working, but I have to press for the mark. I have to reach forth. He is one who provides a good example of weighing works and faith properly. Number four. Here he provides a good example of warning others of spiritual danger. Paul is writing in this chapter, we've already alluded to that there's these teachers there that are, are distorting the truth. He talks about them, as I mentioned in verse 2, the dogs, the evil workers, the concision. Those who are distorting biblical thought and saying to people, you need to be baptized to be saved. You need to keep the feast to be saved. You need to wear certain clothes to be saved. And they make people feel guilty. And by the way, you've run into that in this community, have you not? That people, if they don't wear a certain attire, they lose their salvation. That's very predominant in central PA, yes? And when somebody's been bombarded by that, does it create guilts that they struggle with for a long time? Oh my, yes. It is such a captivating, dangerous doctrine. So he writes to people and he's saying to them, there's people that are distorting the truth. I want you to catch a phrase in verse 1 that's very interesting about him warning. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. We understand don't rejoice in yourself. Don't glory in yourself. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous. For you, it is safe. Do you have another rendering for grievous? Pardon me? Irksome. Okay. Here's the idea. 
me writing and warning you about these false teachers, these false influences, it isn't something that I should shy away from. It isn't something that, that should be just put on the back burner that I should shrink, shrink from. By the way, in 1 Timothy 4, he says, if you be a good minister, put the people in remembrance of the truth. And he's qualifying that if we're those of us who are teaching, you who are training your kids, those of us who are teaching a body like this, that we must at times speak things that aren't all pleasantries, but they are essentials to warn people. Isn't that true as a parent? You've got to warn your kids. And he says, okay, this is something that's very important. In fact, he goes on, he says, it is for you safe, it is stabilizing. Literally, the word is to teeter, to totter. The idea is that it's, it is going to stop you from doing this, vacillating and going every which way. He says, this is why I speak. Because it is important that we tell the truth and warn of those who are giving dangerous doctrine. But not only does he warn of dangerous doctrines, look at what he does after he completes part of this paragraph in chapter 4. In chapter 4, therefore, therefore my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy, my crown, you all need to stand fast in the Lord. My dearly beloved, I love you, I care for you, I delight in you, I'm warning you, that's why I, I'm doing this because you are in my heart. I beseech Yodius and Syntyche that they become of the same mind, that they become of the same mind in the Lord. I beg, I plead with you also, true yoke fellow, help those women who used to labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. I don't know what he's specifically talking about. And most of you don't either. What he's talking about is there's two saved ladies here. Their names are written in the book of life. These are individuals that in some capacity, in some way, shape, or form, they have labored in the past. But right now there's some conflict. There is some division that is taking place. These people are important people in the church that he even names them. You know, some have suggested, like Lydia in the same city, Lydia who is the seller of purple in her house probably became the uh, initial place where the worship was being done. Maybe these two ladies, their homes are, are housing some of the house church. We don't know. All we know is that there's a problem that has taken place between these two individuals and it is well known enough by Paul, that he, who is miles away, somewhere in the report that he has gotten from uh, Epaphroditus, Iodius and Syntyche have come up, that they have something going on between them, and it's dividing the group. It's hurting the church. It is one more illustration in Scripture how division between believers, between individuals, threatens the unity of the body. And he is saying it's got to be dealt with. I'm warning you, don't allow division to destroy the unity of the body of Christ. Because if that happens, you are going against everything that I've already taught. Go back again to the beginning of chapter 2. In chapter 2, he writes about the essence of Christianity. It is that idea of unity. It is that idea of compassion. It is that bowels of mercy that we have in Christ. The example of Jesus to humble himself, to help out even people who have rejected him, offended him. The exhortation that he gives, be like-minded. And he talks about how you need to do this, this, and this for other people. His whole chapter 2, dealing with this idea of unity, he's saying, do not allow the unity to be destroyed within the body by somebody's who are causing and harboring division. 
He warns about these things. He challenges them. He says to other believers by providing a good example of warning of problems and of dangers that could affect them and affect the ministry of Jesus Christ. He gives us a good example by number five. He waits on God to do the spiritual work in the hearts and the lives of those around him. He is writing to them and encouraging them. And look down at verses 15 and 16. Let us therefore... Because of what I've said to you about the idea of it's God's work, but I have responsibility. As many who would be perfect or mature, you need to be thus minded as well. You need to press for the mark. You need to be reaching forward. You need to apprehend for that which you've been apprehended. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, I'm going to make you feel so guilty, you're going to want to change. Is that what he says in verse 15? I'm going to manipulate, I'm going to point you out, I'm going to embarrass you public so that you will change your lifestyle because of the pressure that comes from other people that, that I've put upon you and they've put upon you. It's not what he says. What does he say? I'm going to rely upon who to do a work in your heart. I'm going to rely upon God to do a work in your heart. Now, I understand what he's doing. He is saying in this text that although he's writing, although he's confronting, although he's doing, he realizes that to some degree, real change can only come by the Spirit of God working in people's hearts. We can present the truth, and we need to present the truth. We need to do outreaches. We need to do the preaching. We need to do things, reenactments, Christmas services, Christmas Eve service. Frankly, I'm not doing Christmas Eve service in my mind for, for us. It is, the, it is the one time of the year that a lot of people go to church. It's going to be an outreach service. We need to do that. But I also understand it's not us. We need to present the truth, but God has to get a hold of the heart. We've got to let God do the work. We can, we can encourage, we can plead, we can pray, but we can't twist the arms. You've got to get saved. We are locking the doors. And you cannot get out of this building until you make a profession. Okay? We can't do that. It's got to be the working of God. I can only do so much when people stop by like somebody did last week and want to tell me about members of our church and how bad and corrupt they are and how wicked they are and that I need to do something. I can only do so much. It's got to be who that brings the change. It's got to be the Spirit of God. It's got to be the Spirit of God that says to that person that they need to get right and we can go and talk with them, which we have. Go talk with them and say, listen, your testimony at work is becoming a problem. But if the person says, you know, I'm not listening to you. I can't do any more. You can't do any more. It's got to be the Spirit of God. And so he provides a good example of relying upon the Lord to do this long-lasting work in people's lives without trying to badger. And for me, this is important. For me, it's important that I realize, wait a minute, my ministry is one of communicating the word. It is not to force people. It is not to, to make them bend. By the way, isn't that the same way as a parent? You teach the truth. You provide the example. But you have to come back at times as parents and say, it's the work of the Spirit. They have got to have the working of the Spirit in their heart. Otherwise, it's only going to last as long as they are around me, and as soon as they get away, they're going to do their own thing. And so we have to rely upon the Spirit, and we fast and pray about that. Let me give you another thought. Number six, he wept over the lostness of souls. He is writing in this chapter as he's talking about these people. Look what he says about in verse 18. 
He says, okay, I'm, I'm providing you an example. We are providing you an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even weeping, that they are what? They are what? Enemies of the cross. He is describing a group of people here. Some of the false teachers, some of the others they've influenced. And he says there is a group of people around. You don't want to follow their example. These people, he describes them as enemies of the cross. They rejected Christ. They're opposed to Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says in this passage, whose God is their belly. Is he saying that they, that they hang out at Shady Maple every day? Okay, the belly God tabernacle. Okay, is that what he's talking about? Kind of in a way he is. That it's all about the flesh. Eating, money, sex, popularity, you name it. They're very sensual is the idea. He's talking about people whose glory is their shame. The things that they boast about are shameful things. Or they will be shamed about that in the future. Okay? He talks about these people, he says, they mind earthly things. He talks about these people as he continues, and he talks about these, in, these individuals, and he says in the beginning of verse 19, he says, whose very end is destruction, damnation, the word that talks about lostness in the Gospels. He is saying that these individuals are hell-bound individuals. I'm warning you about them. Now watch what he says as he's writing about them, as he's warning. He says, even as I'm talking about these people, I find their conduct offensive. I find their language a problem. He says, I tell you this even weeping. Even weeping, I tell you about these people. What's he mean by that? It means that even though he's offended by what they are and what they do, he still is moved by the fact that they're damned. That they're lost. He is not rejoicing in the fact that they're going to hell. It bothers him. He is weeping over the fact that he is saying, this, this is not a thrill. I, I, I know, I know those co-workers, they, they, they use the dirtiest language to tell the dirtiest stories and it's disgusting and I feel sometimes that I have to take a shower afterwards by some of the stuff that they tell me they did on the weekend and it's horrible and it's awful. And yet Paul said, would say, standing next to you, it's true, it's true, that's right. You should have that, that offense. But also remember, they're not saved. They don't know better because they're still captivated by sin. And it bothers him. He has definitely given up his old pharisaical ways. Because remember what the Pharisees said that Jesus had to deal with? They said, God rejoices in the damnation of the wicked. Do you remember? And Jesus, in response, gives them the parable of the lost coin, gives them the parable of the lost sheep, he gives the parable of what was the third thing lost? The lost son, the lost son, thank you. The prodigal son, thank you. And at each one of those occasions, what does the person do when everything's found? They're rejoicing when they're recovered, not when they're damned or lost. And so he says, that's the way we need to be, a, a godlike spirit. And Paul was bothered by the teachings, but he was more bothered by their destiny. Let me give you the last example that he provides. It is this, number seven. He watched for the return of Jesus Christ. He concludes the chapter by saying, where we read already, he says in verse 20, from whence also we look for the Savior of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word look means this. It means to have earnest longing for something, eager expectation for something, anxiously planning for something. What is that something? 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes it clear. He says, where's he coming from this next time? He's not coming from a manger, but he's coming from heaven. Let me see if I can illustrate this way, okay, in this regard. Some of you, just the last couple weeks, you knew you were winding down college. You were getting anxious to wind down the semester. You were getting anxious to get out of the campus and get to real home cooking once again. You were getting anxious to come back home and to enjoy those things. And because you were getting anxious, you were making plans. Some of you were counting down the days. Some of you were counting down the hours to say, okay, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward. I can't wait. And as soon as that last test was done, you were in the car and on the road. Oh, yeah, you forgot all your stuff to bring. But you were on the road. You're headed for home. We get anxious for certain things, and it makes a difference. When you're done with college, probably what happens for many people, the thing that they're anxious for is that wonderful day. And Sarah, are you making plans for this wonderful day? Yes. Are you already making plans? I mean, it's only, it's what, four or five months away? Four months, and how many days? 143. Okay, she's not anxious. She's not anxious. It's so far away, she's not planning anything yet. I bet you haven't thought about a dress. Yeah, okay. And you thought about the reception. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. She's got all these things planned. Jacob, he's just going to show up. Okay, that, he's going to be there. He's going to do the man thing. Just show up, get this over with, let's move on. Okay. But we get excited for those events, right? And we plan, and it makes a difference in our life. And then after that big event of marriage, year, a couple of years go by, what's the next major event that we plan for? We change the decor. We go out buying everything because this little person is going to take control of our entire life. And everywhere we go now, it's like we're moving the entire house for that one little body. Okay, but we're anxious for it. We get really anxious. And then we have all these highlights and then what happens? You get that age where you're anxious for the little kids to come back or the big kids to come back home. And you do stuff, you prepare. We're in our house. One of the things we're doing is renovations in the basement. Not because Deb and I want separate floors. <laughs> we're doing because we're anxious for the kids to do what? Come back sometime. And it makes an impact upon our life. How, I mean, seriously. How many of us end up with bigger homes than when we raise the kids? Okay. I mean, I, we raised six people. We had raised four kids, and we had one bathroom. Now we have no kids in the home, and we have three. Okay, <laughs> and it happens. And I'm not the only one in this room, so don't start. I, I can point out people. Okay, you know. And I'm so excited. And by the way, do I have a drool spit mark here? No. It was my proud mark, holding the baby, and letting her drool spit all over. And Becky said, Dad, you don't want to go to church with dual spit. Yes, I do. <laughs> I sure do. Okay. Those events that we look forward to, do they impact our lives? Okay. How has this event impacted and changed our lives? How has the return of Jesus Christ impacted the way we build, renovate, serve, plan? He's saying, that's what I'm doing. Are these other things important? Every one of us would say, absolutely. But this event should be making a difference in our life every single day. The way we live, the way we walk, the way we talk. And Paul said they did. 
I'm watching. I am eagerly waiting for it. I am anxiously expecting it for the Lord to return. And when he comes back, here's what's going to happen. He's going to change my vile body. He's going to change me and he's going he's to make me different. This, by the way, what event is he talking about? But the Lord coming back from heaven, changing our bodies. The rapture. He's talking about the rapture. Who Jesus Christ will do this. Who will make us into like his glorious body. And he says it is such a real event. It seems phenomenal. People don't think it's real. But he goes on. He says in this verse. It's going to happen. It's the working whereby he is able to subdue all things. This one who is so powerful. He can make it happen. He can make it happen in our lives. And Paul says hey listen. This moment in history, in my future moment, it's going to make a big difference. It's going to carry me through the trials that I know there's going to be a reunion. It's going to help me through the everyday difficulties. I can rejoice because there's going to be that opportunity. And I'm going to try to remain faithful. I'm going to try to serve you, God. Why? Because I'm looking. So we put it all together and what do we have? We've got somebody who is saying, you can follow me. I'm providing an example that spiritually you can follow. God knows it. It's under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And you and I need to, at this Christmas season, take and say, what about my family? Because it's family time. Am I giving my family an example they can follow? Am I providing my kids, my wife, my relatives, my unsaved relatives, am I giving them an example the baby Christians, the young Christians, am I giving them an example? The kids in our church, are we giving them an example that they could follow and say, that is what I should strive to be like. As they follow Christ, I can follow them.